prophet Isaiah was preaching in the midst of hard times. His people have suffered long, first under the fists of the Assyrians and then the Babylonians. And like all who suffer, they want to know why. Why, they wonder, when we make sacrifices and we pray and we fast, why does God ignore our cries? Isaiah offers answers here, but little in the way of comfort. God does not answer, he tells them, because there's a difference between being righteous and being self-righteous. Sure, you practice your religion, he tells them, but you don't practice your faith. You go to church, so to speak, but you step on the poor to get there. You offer sacrifices bought with stolen money. You take more than you give. Is this the fast, Isaiah asks sarcastically, that the Lord desires? The scripture reading today is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 58. Shout out, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Announce to my people their rebellion, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet day after day they seek me and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that practiced righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They want God on their side. Why do we fast, but you do not see? Why humble ourselves, but you do not notice? Look, you serve your own interest on your fast day and oppress all your workers. You fast only to quarrel and to fight and to strike with a wicked fist. Such fasting as you do today will not make your voice heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose, a day to humble oneself? Is it to bow down the head like a bulrush and to lie in sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover them and not to hide yourself from your own kin? Then your light shall break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up quickly. Your vindicator shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry for help, and he will say, here I am. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Please pray with me. Everlasting God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you. May they be in keeping with the teachings of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So last week, I received a bizarre phone call. Hello, are you having a fantastic day today? Sang the voice of a man on the other end. His excessive enthusiasm was immediately off-putting. I find it difficult to believe that anyone making these kinds of phone calls could possibly be that excited about it. It was the voice of a snake oil peddler 
a grifter, someone who was going to try to squeeze me for something. I was sure of it. Are you having a fantastic day today? Not especially, I replied warily. Well, all of that is about to change, he chirped. I'm calling you today from the Publisher's Clearinghouse. Are you familiar with Publisher's Clearinghouse, sir? I had to stifle my laughter. Publisher's Clearinghouse? Those guys are still around? I could remember uh, the TV commercials from the 80s where the, the prize patrol would show up at people's houses with one of those giant cardboard checks worth millions of dollars. I never really understood their business model, you know, how it all worked. But I guess it's some sort of direct marketing company that sells magazine subscriptions under the pretense that it will increase your odds of winning this sweepstakes. They're legitimate in the sense that they actually exist and that they generally stay on the right side of the law. That being said, they've been sued by just about every state in the union for using intentionally misleading language, things like guaranteed winner, and telling folks that they've already won something when they have not. What's worse is that opportunistic scammers will often pretend to be representatives of publishers clearinghouse, standing on the name recognition, and in all likelihood, this is who I was speaking to on the phone. Publishers clearinghouse, I said. You guys are still around? Yes, sir, he replied, and it's my privilege to tell you that you have won three and a half million dollars. Isn't that exciting? Isn't that unbelievable? Unbelievable, I repeated. I can't think of a better word to describe what you're telling me. <laughs> I reminded him that Publishers Clearinghouse is a bit of a joke culturally and that no one takes them seriously. It's like shorthand for a scam or something that's too good to be true, I told him. But it is true, he protested. I suppose I'll just have to give you my social security number first, I quipped, but he didn't miss a beat. No, sir, just keep an eye out for the brown van that's headed to your location right now. They will be the ones to deliver your prize. I was confused. I'd taken the call on my cell phone while I was at the office. Where was this van headed? To my house? To the church? I wasn't entirely comfortable with the idea of a, of a van full of strange men coming to find me. I found myself peering out the window with a touch of paranoia. So while I still had the guy on the phone, I asked him to clarify where this mysterious van was headed exactly. But instead of answering my question, he cheerfully said, goodbye, and ended the call. And that was that. Needless to say, the oddly specific brown van never materialized, nor did my three and a half million dollars. I suppose my cynical suspicion encouraged the caller to go find an easier mark, someone desperate enough to pin their hopes on a dream that will never come true. For my part, contrary to this man's claim, he had not made my day any more fantastic. Even though it was a short call, I felt tired. It's exhausting, frankly, living in a world where someone is constantly trying to take advantage of. Sometimes I find myself wishing I could just walk away from the unscrupulous ways of this world, find some place where not even Publishers Clearinghouse 
could ever find me. Now, technically, as I said, the publisher's clearinghouse is a legitimate business. But legitimate businesses take advantage of people, too. Companies will employ all kinds of underhanded tactics to squeeze as much as they can from folks, customers and employees alike. Inexplicable service charges and hidden fees are everywhere, sometimes bordering on the criminal. My son almost purchased a subscription for some crummy game on my phone when I realized that they were charging almost $100 a week just for the chance to, you know, spin a wheel and win some in-game currency that isn't even real. Don't get me started on all those blind bags at the toy store. Every toy aisle, you'll find these, these mysterious blind bags. You don't even know what you're getting. If you want to collect the whole series of some, you know, action figures or something, you have to buy five times as many of them as if you would just would if you were buying them outright. And it's a terrible feeling, I'll tell you, when you agree to buy maybe two of these for your kid, and then they open up to find that they're both the same thing. And they start crying in the back seat of your car. Like I said, don't even get me started. <laughs> maybe it's a little late for that. Of course, we know that companies will charge the maximum amount for things that people are willing to pay. That's not a crime, it's not a sin, it's just good business. But when everyone is struggling, to make ends meet, there was some study recently that said 50% of Americans can't afford a $1,000 emergency. When everyone's struggling to make ends meet, when times are hard, and when grocery store chains are charging more for everything and making record profits, we'll do the math. There's been a lot of debate about the cause of inflation and higher prices, from supply chain problems to avian flu to price gouging. The smart money is on all of the above. One aspect of the economy, though, is undisputed, according to a recent article in Fortune magazine. A wave of mergers in recent decades has killed or shrunk competition among airlines, banks, meatpacking companies, and many other industries. That consolidation has given the surviving companies the leverage to demand price cuts from suppliers, to hold down workers' pay, and to pass on higher costs to customers who don't have much choice but to pay up. Now, even though I'm cheap by nature, I'm a believer in what's called full-cost accounting. Namely, the cost of a product ought to reflect the true cost of its production. So when you're paying the, the bean pickers and the truck drivers and the baristas a decent wage, and you're account accounting for the environmental costs of production and transport, that cup of coffee is going to be more expensive. But when the bean pickers in South America are being paid pennies on the dollar, and the coffee still costs eight bucks, it just doesn't seem to add up. As Jermaine Clement once sang, they're turning kids into slaves just to make cheaper sneakers. But what's the real cost? Because the sneakers don't seem that much cheaper. And friends, that brings us to the heart of this text from Isaiah, which is really about taking advantage of people in general, and the poor specifically. Look, you serve your own interests on your fast day and oppress all of your workers, says the prophet Isaiah. Is this not the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry? 
Now, nothing I've talked about thus far today, barring a few technical details, is exclusive to the 21st century. People have been taking advantage of each other since forever. I can remember visiting Ephesus many years ago, one of the most ancient cities in the world, and being accosted by a street peddler who was selling what he claimed were authentic Roman coins. $50, only $50, he shouts in my face. I tell him I'm not interested, at which point he immediately says, $5, only $5. Isaiah, much like Jesus, condemns this kind of grift. He promotes fair pay for honest work rather than gouging customers and shortchanging employees. In other words, a fair exchange of goods and services. Now, contrary to what you might think, I'm not anti-business. In fact, I have been engaged in an effort for the past year or so to start a business right here at church. As it stands, 100% of our work is funded uh, by your generous donations. And in theory, establishing a small for-profit subsidiary could increase our annual margins. Not so I can get a big fat executive bonus, but so that we can do more good in the community and in the world. Now you might be wondering if this is legal, especially insofar as the IRS is concerned. It is, if you set it up right. And I've got a team of folks from the church doing the heavy lifting on this, as it's a little bit outside of my wheelhouse. Successful entrepreneurs and business owners who actually know a thing or two about this stuff, people who have established and run profitable and ethical businesses in our community. We're looking uh, into a service, possibly, that would offer eco-friendly household products and refilling uh, old containers, that kind of thing. Something in line with our mission and values of sustainability. And we've actually gotten a grant from Northern Illinois University that will supply us with a team of graduate students who've just started helping us to write a business plan. So we'll see where it goes. I have nothing against commerce, per se, or turning a profit. Like Isaiah, I just have a big problem with companies that conduct their business on the backs of suffering people. Corporations routinely flock overseas, as we all know, to sweatshops and factories to lower the cost of doing business, turning a blind eye to the misery that unfolds in these places day by day. But listen, if you have to put a box in the middle of your warehouse where employees can crawl into to cry or scream like Amazon has, or suicide nets around the roof of your factory like Foxconn did in China, well, maybe you're doing it wrong. If our prosperity depends on the suffering of others, then maybe something in the system is fundamentally broken. In 1973, 50 years ago, uh, author Ursula K. Le Guin published a short story called The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas. She describes a kind of utopian society, a beautiful city on the shores of some ocean on the day of their annual festival. She takes quite a bit of time to describe the excitement in the air, especially among the children who run freely down the streets and avenues of Omelas, 
amidst the fluttering of colorful flags that adorn the shops and residences. The author is intentionally vague, though, about the particulars of this utopia. Their religion, their politics, and their economy are all a blank slate, reflecting whatever the reader believes to be ideal. Omelas might be a theocracy or a secular state, could be a benevolent dictatorship or a flourishing democracy. It could be the heights of the capitalist dream or a socialist enclave. Whatever it is that you believe to be the perfect world, that's what Omelas is. There is, of course, a catch. In a basement under one of the beautiful public buildings of Omelas, or perhaps in the cellar of one of its spacious private homes, there is a room, the author explains. It has one locked door and no window. A little light seeps in dustily between cracks in the boards, secondhand from a cobwebbed window somewhere across the cellar. In one corner of the little room, a couple of mops with stiff, clotted, foul-smelling heads stand near a rusty bucket. In that room, a child is sitting. She goes on to describe in great detail the miserable existence of this child who lives in darkness, covered in filth, given just enough sustenance to survive. They all know it is there, all the people of Omelas, she writes. They all know that it has to be there. Some of them understand why and some do not, but they all understand that their happiness the beauty of their city, the tenderness of their friendships, the health of their children, the wisdom of their scholars, the skill of their makers, even the abundance of their harvest and the kindly weathers of their skies depend wholly on this child's abominable misery. And thus Le Guin poses a moral predicament. Is the thriving of this utopia the flourishing of all these people, worth the unbearable pain of a single child, is a system that is built upon such misery really worth maintaining. When I look at our own world, I see so much suffering beneath the surface of things, in factories and in mines, in fields and in warehouses, much of it buried beneath the foundations of what we call success and prosperity. And so I have to ask, as Isaiah does, is this the fast that the Lord requires of us? Perhaps we should bear this in mind as we conduct our own business. Le Guin's story ends with a nod to its title describing those who decide to leave rather than profit off of this child. She reminds us that when we're faced with injustice, we always have a choice. Each alone, they go west or north towards the mountains. They go on. They leave Omelas. They walk ahead into the darkness, and they do not come back. The place they go towards is a place even less imaginable to most of us than this city of happiness. I cannot describe it at all. It is possible that it does not exist. But they seem to know where they are going, the ones who walk away from Omelas.
Friends, perhaps a place like that does exist. Maybe the ones who walk away find themselves at a table like this, where the hungry are always fed. Amen.